name. Amen. So the question is, is there any room for improvement in the way that we collectively worship God? Um, Think about that. We gather corporately together. And would you say there's any room for improvement in the way that we collectively or corporately worship God? Is there room for improvement? And I think many of us would say, well, that's an easy question. Well, yeah, there's room for improvement. There's always ways in which the church can improve and grow in the way that we collectively worship God. I mean, we could talk about singing and maybe come up with better ways to sing or talk about ways in which congregations can sing better or ways in which we could implement so that things are more lively. Or maybe when it comes to the preaching, there is an aspect in which the preacher, I know I'm talking about myself right now, could be more interesting or more captivating. Uh, Perhaps if he did this, then I would respond that way. And so, yes, when we gather together corporately, there's a lot of ways in which we could find uh, areas of improvement. However, in your relationship with God, you're not responsible for other people, right? You're responsible for yourself. So let's reframe the question a bit. Is there any room for improvement in the way you come to our corporate gatherings and worship God? Is there any room for improvement in the way that you come to our corporate gatherings and worship God? Is there room for improvement in your heart this morning? This morning, we're going to spend most of our time in chapter 5, the first seven verses of chapter 5, but chapter 4 leads us to it. Uh, So let me give you the lay of the land with chapter 4, and we're going to go through this very quickly still in our introduction here. What Solomon does in chapter 4 is he lays out wisdom, proverb-like wisdom for everyday living. Um, One of the things that he does in chapter 4 that leads us into chapter 5 is he uses the word better. In chapter 4, there's four contrasts, and he says, here's one scenario, now this is better. And he does that four times in chapter four. And then he gets to chapter five and pulls us into a whole new category with better living. So that's where we're going. And just bear with me. I think you'll see this as we go through it. Let's look at these scenarios that he gives to us in chapter four. The first scenario in chapter four is about oppression. The strong regularly oppresses the weak. Verse 1, again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. Verse 3, but better than both is he who has not yet been and has not even seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Basically, better is the person who has never been born than have to deal with oppression. He leads us to a second contrast, a second scenario, and this one involves work in verses four through six. He says this, then I saw all, that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. That's an interesting thought there, and that's true. You know, you, you see somebody else's work and what they work to get, and you look at that and you say, man, I would like to have that, so now I better toil and labor a little bit harder so I get that and then something more. So there's a lot of toil there, and he says, this is also his vanity and a striving after the wind. Verse 5, on the flip side, you have a fool who folds his hands and eats his own flesh. He does nothing. 
So you have somebody who's a workaholic over here, and then you have a fool who just folds their hands and literally sort of cannibalizing themselves. So in verse 6, he says, Better is a handful of quietness than two handfuls of toil and a striving after the wind. And basically what he's saying is that it's better for somebody to work and then have a season of quietness. Work and have a season of quietness. This is better than being a workaholic and then being a fool and not doing anything. So it's better to work and have some rest. He gives a third category in verses 7 through 12, and this is the category about companionship. We're used to hearing this oftentimes in weddings. Verse 7, he says, Again, I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, For whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Verse 9, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. How can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken." And so here he's talking about just in everyday life, it's good to have a companion. He's not necessarily talking about marriage. He's saying it's not good to go alone in life as a maverick. It's good to go through life with companionship. And then verses 13 through 18, it's talk about political sort of leadership. So verse 13, better was a poor and wise youth than an old foolish king who knew lo no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after the wind. So here's this fourth category where Solomon is basically saying it's better to have a poor young man become a leader than a wise old leader. But still, I mean, a rich, foolish leader. Thank you. I saw that head nod saying, no, you got that one wrong. <laughs> Thank you. Um, you this, this poor, wise young man is better than the rich, old, foolish man. And so Solomon is just looking at life and he's saying, let me just give you proverbial wisdom here is life under the sun. If you have to live life under the sun, here are some better categories. And all of us could step into that and say, yes, yes, that, that makes sense. Um, it's good to go through life with companionship. It's good to go through life with work and rest. You know, you see people who have been beaten down with abuse all of their lives. And I can kind of say with Solomon, it's Better for people not to be born than have to go through all kinds of abuse throughout their lives. When it comes to leadership, yes, it's, it's better to have somebody who is poor yet wise than somebody who is old and rich and foolish at the, at the helm there. And so Solomon just sets up these four categories and the question is, okay, Solomon, where are you going with all of this? 
Did you notice who is absent in chapter 4? In all of chapter 4, you won't see God's name once. And remember, in Ecclesiastes, he's talking about categories of life. He's talking about, oftentimes, life under the sun or life under the hand of God. And here in chapter 4, he's saying, here is life under the sun, and here are just some wise ways that people make it through life under the sun apart from God. But he doesn't want us to stop there. He doesn't want us to just live in this category of life under the sun. So what he does is he uses this word better two times again at the beginning of chapter 5. He pulls us into this other category of living. He says, I want you to see that there's something better. And so he pivots at the beginning of chapter 5. He's like, I want to draw your attention to this area of life that is in relationship with God. I want you to be thinking about this category now. So chapter 4 is present, and it tells us, yes, this is life under the sun. But for the person who is in relationship with God, there's more now. There's much more here. So just to illustrate this, this last week, I moved into a new category of life. I installed an underground sprinkling system. No more dragging my hoses around the yard with sprinklers trying to keep up on dry grass. I have moved into this whole new category where I'm going to be able to enjoy the push of a button and then go back to sleep kind of thing. Solomon is saying, let's go from one category to another. Let's enjoy and talk about something that is much more meaningful. And so in chapter 5, verses 1 through 7, we have this shift that occurs. We're not talking about life under the sun. We're talking about life with God. And so Solomon specifically has in mind the way people should approach their relationship with God in the worship that takes place at the temple. Now, the temple was a special place. It was the only place on earth where God had chosen to manifest his presence. So, I mean, just think about this. This building is not a temple, okay? We can't confuse temple theology with church building theology God has moved from the temple into our hearts. But for the sake of illustration, think about this for just a moment. The Jews went to the temple and God uniquely placed his presence there. So when they went to that building, they knew that in that back room, God was uniquely there. To be there was very special. It was reverential then to be there. You, you walked there and you walked with a sense of awe and respect because God was in that back room. Like, you don't mess around here because this is God's place. It's where he dwells. And Solomon is saying, there's life, you know, out in the world, but I want you to know about there's life in the presence of God here. And let's talk about that for a few minutes. And he tells us, this is how you can approach God. This is how one ought to, like, enjoy living in relationship with God. And so as we think about this this morning, the temple theology of God being in a building, I have to say this again, we can't push that onto this structure here. The emphasis that's taking place is the worship that happens when you are gathered together with God's people, the reverence that ought to be there when you're gathered together with God's people because you're worshiping God. This morning, as we're gathered together, I think we need to kind of tighten down the ratchet a little bit, at least in our thinking, and be challenged that when we approach worship, 
this isn't some sort of flimsy category that, you know, kind of like the world, you know, there's some wisdom to it. No, this is ratcheting things down. We need to be heightened and aware more of what we should be doing when we approach God in worship. And that's what Solomon is outlining for us in the book of Ecclesiastes. That's what God is using in this passage this morning. So point number one as we look at our sermon this morning is this. When you approach God in worship, listen as though God is greater than you. Listen as though God is greater than you. So look at verse one of chapter five where he says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. That phrase has the idea of approach this setting here with respect. When the Jews were approaching the temple, this was their time of worship, they were to guard their behavior as they approached the temple of God. It was a special place. It was this holy place. God dwelt there. You were going to God's location. And so how would the Jew guard his or her step? Well, specifically, Solomon says that it was better for a person to approach God in the temple with the specific intent of listening to him. Look what he says. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God to draw near to listen. That's the idea there. This is how you do it. You draw near with the intention of listening to God's word being read. The priest would get up, he would read the word of God, and he would explain it. And so he's saying the idea of listening is something that you come to the temple and you're expecting to hear God speak. There are some folks who come to the place where the worship of God takes place. They hear someone get up and speak, but they are not actively listening. They are hearing words, but it's just 40 minutes, and in the back of their mind, they're like, okay, I got done with the singing, and now I can take like 40 minutes to let my mind wander into the assignments that have to take place this week. Or I've got this project that's due, or I've got this relationship that needs to be worked on, or I can fold my arms, drop my chin, and catch a little snooze for 40 minutes. I'll hear what's taking place in one ear, but Solomon is saying, no, no, no. When you draw near to the place of worship, your brain has to be actively involved in intending to listen to God's word. Listening is when the worshiper draws near, and in his heart, or her heart, she is saying, God, speak to me. I need a word from you to move through this week again. Speak to me. And Solomon says that the person who draws near with the intention of hearing God speak is better than the sacrifice of a fool. So what's going on there? Well, the sacrifice is a very public step, right? Everybody knows when you're coming with a sacrifice. You've got the lamb in your arms. Everyone can see it. But it's the sacrifice of a fool. And so the fool is the one who is coming, but his sacrifice is meaningless. According to Malachi, he brings the lame. He brings the broken animal. He brings the least important in his flock. Other places in the Psalms, you hear the fool who says in his heart, there really isn't any God. So in that scenario, someone comes to corporate worship and goes through all the external actions, but the way they do it is there's a huge disconnect between their heart, the ears of their heart, and the voice of God. 
it's a very hypocritical way. It's meeting external expectations, a religious checkbox. It's the heart of a fool. In verse 2, Solomon continues his theme and says of it being better to listen than being rash with your words. Verse 2, be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. So some people go through the motions of just saying things, all the like sort of right things to say when they come into worship. Perhaps Jesus had this in mind when he taught his disciples how to pray, Matthew 6, 7, and 8. He said, and when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows that you need what you need before you ask him. Like, worship isn't about just these empty words that come out of all this. So the point of this is that when the Jews came to God's house for their time of worship, there was no need to impress others with words or with external actions. Instead, Solomon is saying, it's better for you to come to corporate worship with the intention of listening to God. Ears for God. Now, Solomon gives us a reason. Why is it better to do that? Look what he says here at the end or the middle of verse two. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. What does that mean? It's better to come in and listen rather than go to all through the external actions. Why? Because God is in heaven and you are on earth. When Solomon says this, he is drawing our attention to between the distinction of the nature of God and man. There's a distinction between us and God. God being in heaven is so much greater than we who are limited to earth. It's an expression of God's greatness. When, when the text says that God is in heaven, it's an expression of how much greater God is. So several passages, let's just look at these and you'll see the greatness of God as we go through these. Psalm 103, verse 19. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens. And look at his greatness. His kingdom rules over all. Psalm 115, verse 3. Our God is in the heavens. What does this mean? It means that he does all that he pleases. Isaiah 66, verse 1. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me and what is the place of my rest? Like, these things are minimal in comparison to the bigness of God. I have an extended passage from Revelation chapter 4 where we move into the throne room of heaven and just look at the greatness of God here as I read through this. You can follow along. After, I, after this, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. John has a vision here. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. So at once I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it is, 
uh, were a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. And so here is heaven testifying to the greatness of who God is, entering into his presence and saying, this God is so much greater than anyone else. God is greater than us. And so Solomon's point is that when the people of God come together to worship God, whether it was the Jews under the old covenant or Christians under the new, it is imperative for us to remember that God is greater than us, and if he is, we should come with the intention of listening to him. Have you ever been in one of those spots where you're at a meal or part of a conversation where there is a very distinguished individual in the group. Yet someone else in the group thinks that they should have the platform to talk and to talk a lot. It's sort of awkward. It's embarrassing. Because you're thinking about the blabbermouth, you should really close your mouth and start listening because this person is really an expert in the field and they know what they are talking about. And Solomon's point is that when you come together as a church body, God speaks. We have to be intentional about the ears of our hearts being opened up, expecting God to speak to us, not because a man is behind a pulpit, but because God's word is being opened. And when God's word is being opened, our ears should be intent on listening to him speak to us. So when Israel was camped at the edge of the promised land, God had brought them out of Egypt and he showed them all of his greatness with those plagues. Moses brings them to the edge of the promised land and he says, I want you to do one thing in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. He says, I want you to listen. Hear, O Israel, listen. God is the Lord our God. The Lord is one. And here's what God would have you do. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your might. Israel, I want you to hear this. This is God speaking to you. Love him in this way. He's greater than any of us. When it comes to listening, the Apostle James picks up this theme as well in James 1, verses 19 and following. And look at James' language. Know this, my beloved brothers. Like he's looking at his people saying, you are the, I love you guys. You have to get this, know this, get this in your mind. Let every person be quick to hear, 
slow to speak and slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant, rampant wickedness and do what? Receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. And so in the spirit of James, I would say, beloved, when we come together, be quick to hear. Why? Because this word is being opened. It's the word which God has used to save your soul from eternal judgment. So you get to this point, and I ask myself questions like, practically speaking, we see that when we come together for corporate worship, Solomon is exhorting us, it is better to listen than to go through a lot of external actions. How can I be a good listener? God is great, and he speaks to us through his word. How can I be a good listener? Like, practically, how can I approach our corporate times together and be a good listener of God's word? Let me just give you a few. There's probably a list that can go on and on, but let me just give you a few. Number one is this. Spend time praying before you come to church. This could be Saturday night where you gather the family together, dads, and you lead your children and your wife in a level of seriousness about God's word, knowing that it's God's word that your family needs most. And so you gather your family together and you set a precedent saying, we need to pray this evening. We need to pray that we would be ready for the day tomorrow because it's a unique day. It's when God has gathering us together and his word is being opened and we want to read it and we want to study it and we want it to change our lives. I would challenge the men of this church that if you have not set a precedent of praying with your family, you are missing a very good opportunity to lead your family. Gather them together Practically, we gather our kids together every night and we just close the day in prayer. On Saturdays, oftentimes, uh, whether it's at our meals or in our evenings, we pray at both. We're praying for the next day that God will just use the day, using the classes down the hallway to impress upon our children the truth of God's word. Man, I think this is a step that if you have not taken, you should own it and start taking it so that your family can recognize that you see God as being greater, the God who is in heaven, and you want to listen to him. We pray when we come to church. We start the service off with prayer. Pastor Mike opened up the word, and we were reading through Romans chapter 5 this morning. We spent time praying there. We spend time praying before the sermon Pray that when you come together around God's word, you will hear it. God will speak to you. We don't want this to be just an external exercise. A bunch of fools could gather together and go through all the motions and say, see what I've done? Check the box. Here's my sacrifice. No, it's better to listen than to go through those actions. Here's another one. Perhaps this is a little harder this morning, especially with the rain. Arrive at corporate worship 
on time. Like, we start at 9.30 every Sunday morning. There's no changes, no surprises. Like, there's no, hey, we threw a wrench in there, and we got you. We're starting at 9.25 this morning. For as long as you've been coming here, okay, at least in the last 10 years, it has started at 9.30. And right off the bat, God's word is opened up, and corporately together, we read scripture. Through our singing, there's a time where we pause and we read scripture again, and then scripture is read right before the sermon, and then we get into the sermon and we're studying God's word. If you're arriving at 9.35, 9.40, do something about it. And I'm trying not to be a pastor who rants about it, so I'm just going to stop right there, okay? Arrive early. Spirit, you can handle the rest. I'm out. Number three, seek an application personally. Like when you come together, when we come together, I would encourage you, come into this time where God's word is being opened up and you're saying, when God's word is being opened up, there should be something that I can take away from this time together. I heard Pastor Wayne tell the story about a seminary president who sat through a chapel service and it was obvious that the speaker was not well-polished, maybe not even well-prepared. So a student in the school came up to the seminary president and asked him what he thought about the chapel sermon. The student was expecting a critical comment from the president about the sermon that he had just heard. The president responded by saying, anytime the word of God is open, I can get something from it. That should be our attitude. You might say, man, this really isn't where I'm at this morning. And that's like telling God, God, this portion of your your word isn't for me. Like, can you imagine saying that to God this morning? God, portion of your word, not for me. No, when God's word is opened up, we have to have this mindset like, I'm in. Like, I am coming in to find something and I'm trusting the spirit of God to open up my ears and say, here it is for you. Like, be filled with, with the word right here. To not have that attitude is a disrespect to God, it's a disrespect to the Spirit, it's a disrespect to His Word. When we gather together, folks, we should be gathering with the intention to listen as though God is greater than us and He has something to say. There's a second component of our worship, and that's in verses 4 through 6. We speak or act as though God is greater than us. We speak and we act as though God is greater than us. Look at verse four when he says, when you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. And here's the sixth better from when we started in chapter four. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. So, Solomon is drawing on a passage from the Old Testament about vows, Deuteronomy 23, verses 21 and 22, where Moses says, if you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay in fulfilling it, for the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from vowing, you will not be guilty of sin. What's a vow? A vow is a promise to God. It's a commitment to God. In our corporate gatherings, We do make vows to God. We have a membership covenant, 
And in so many words, we say in that covenant that we will pray, we will study God's word, we will pursue community, we will support missions. We're vowing before the Lord to do that. Other times, we gather for weddings. Man and a woman come together, make a commitment to one another, to the congregation and to God. When you entered into marriage, you made a vow with God. Our church oftentimes makes a vow to care for the discipleship of the children of this church. When we have a young person, uh, parents who just want to bring their young child forward, we're saying we're going to help these parents and we're going to help disciple this child in the faith. In our songs, we make promises to God. You made a commitment to God in the singing this morning. One of the lines was, my Jesus, I love thee, I know thou art mine. For thee, all the follies of sin I resign. I'll love thee in life and I'll love thee in death. I'll love thee as long as thou lendest me breath. Those are promises. Like when you're singing, you're saying, God, this is what I'm bringing to you and I'm committing to following through with it. Do you think about the words that you speak when you're singing? When we're speaking those words, the attitude of our heart ought to be, God, you are much greater than I am. Therefore, when I say these things, I will follow through with it. I will be committed to it. And why should we be committed to it? Here's the reason. Look at verse 4. For he has no pleasure in fools. You see the contrast there. Somebody comes forward and says, okay, I'm making this commitment to God. And he says, I want you to know I've got no pleasure in fools. The fool's like, oh, I can throw some words out there and say I mean it, but in my heart, I act as though God doesn't exist. There's a rightful place for vows. But he also says this in verse five. Hey, it's better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. So folks would come to the temple. They would make a vow. And it can get so excessive in vow-making that people would not keep their vow. And when the messenger, probably the coin collector from the temple, when he comes to collect, hey, you made a vow about giving, the vow-maker says, oh, that vow was a mistake. I can't keep that vow. You're acting as though God is not worth your vow. And the problem is that people have a wrong heart at that point. So there's this danger of making vows because you're just going through the motions of some sort of religion, but you're not seeing God behind it saying, yes, God, you are great. I, I need to keep this commitment that I've made. And instead of even just making commitments sort of empty with an empty mind, Solomon says, where is your heart in all of this? It's better not to make a vow than to go through this religious exercise of saying I'm going to do it when your heart's not really in it. Vows made to God really aren't the essence of true worship. What is true worship? Look down at verse 7. For when dreams increase and worships, or words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. There needs to be a fear of God. There needs to be an awe and a reverence of God. 
This is what Solomon is pushing us towards. Verses one through three, keep in mind, God is in heaven and you are on earth. God is much greater. Verse seven, there must be a fear of God as worshipers. Last week, I mentioned concerning fear, the illustration of the German shepherd. Um, This week, I was talking with some folks who had been out to Yellowstone and they had seen the Grand Canyon of Yellowstone, and Chris and I had gone there a few years ago. In some places, the drop of that canyon is 1,200 feet. And you're, you're, you're winding through Yellowstone on these little two-lane roads, and there's this drop-off that goes down 1,200 feet. And that kind of majesty, when you see it, it causes you to pause. You don't mess around with that kind of majesty. You don't go playing lightly with it. You respond to it with awe. In your heart, you can be saying, this is awesome. You're drawn into it, but you have a healthy respect of it. And this is what Solomon is saying. God is the one you must fear. You are drawn into his majesty. You're drawn into who he is. You have a healthy respect for God. You don't mess around with God. And this is how we should approach God in our worship, by seeing the awesome nature of God, by approaching him with this reverential fear. So, in application, how can we cultivate that awe of God? How can we approach this time, Sunday mornings at 9.30, and cultivate that kind of awe? Well, when I go to the Grand Canyon and see it, I'm amazed, and then I go home. No more amazement. Just checking to make sure I wasn't echoing myself here. (laughs) No more amazement when I leave and go home. I need to live at the edge of the Grand Canyon regularly and take it in regularly. I need to see it regularly. I need to bring my mind back to it regularly in order to have this healthy fear of the canyon. So what is it that I'm doing? What is it that I'm regular taking in in respect to God so that I have what verse seven says, a fear of God regularly? I don't want the fear of God to be some sort of shot in the dark, then I go away and it's gone. How is it that when I leave here this afternoon, when I get up tomorrow, when I go through the week, how is it that I have this right view of God where, God, you are majestic. You're not just some sort of God that's on the shelf where I check in, check out. How is it that I have this right fear of God? Well, one way is I keep coming back to what God has done. Think about this as we celebrate the Lord's table this morning. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 7. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he was the one who made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And look what he's done. He has raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. How is it that I cultivate a healthy fear of God? I keep coming back to who I am and what God has done. I'm a mere earthling who has sinned against God, and in my sin, I deserve eternal hell forever and ever. Not just tomorrow for 24 hours, and then I'm out. 
That would be bad if all of us knew we had 24 hours in hell tomorrow and then on Tuesday we got out. We'd be like, I have been dreading this day forever. That's nothing in comparison to eternity. God has saved us from an eternity of hell. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. To start all over again, here comes another week. Oh, and those weeks make up another month. And those months make up another year. And that's just the beginning of eternity. This is what the text of Scripture says, that we are condemned before we come to Christ, deserving of hell. Does the wrath of God towards sin sink in in such a way where we're like, I don't want to mess around with that wrath at all? That's an awful wrath. Like that develops some sort of reverence in my heart to who God is. I'd better not mess around with him. And then we move to Ephesians chapter 2 where he says, but I am rich in mercy. Here's wrath. You deserve wrath because of your sin. But here I am, a heavenly father who loves his children, and I am just overflowing in mercy in the person of Christ. Here is Jesus who came and lived the perfect life that we could not live without no sin, without any sin. And then Jesus goes to the cross, and in that time on the cross, he takes the punishment for the sin that I deserve. The wrath of God was poured out on him in that moment. And here's the, here's the gospel. Here's the good news, where we can come to Christ by faith, and he offers his life as a gift to us so that we don't have to spend Monday through Saturday, week after week, month after month, year after year, millennium after millennium, for the rest of eternity in hell forever and ever. If that doesn't jar us into fearing God, I don't know what will. And here's the mercy of God where he comes along and says, but I've loved you to save you from that. This is the God whom we worship, the God who has saved us from eternal judgment forever and ever. When you think about the good news of Jesus, you are brought face to face with the reality of the greatness of God this brings us into right perspective, a reverence of worshiping God. And worship then is a matter of what is taking place in your heart this morning, not the external actions. And we come around this table and we handle the elements and we say, God, thank you. This is a good reminder. I want to continue to walk in fear of you. Let's pray.